Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. was listening recently to a recording I did with the great Vic Elford, one of motor racing's truly most talented drivers of all time. His versatility across Trans Am, Can-Am, Formula One, endurance racing, 24 Hours of Daytona, Sebring, Le Mans, rally what we would call today world rally championship i think dragsters might be just about the only thing vic did not race and race at the highest level did a episode of our my racing life and career with vic back in 2018 part one of a two-parter and I actually still have the part two here to publish nonetheless i was listening back to it and realized that back in 20 late 2017, early 2018, when we recorded this, I don't know if I spent all the time that I should have to try and remove some of the echo in the room and just listen to it and said, you know, this deserves just some tweaks and improvements, make the sound quality a little bit better than what it was, cut a couple of uh, pauses and spaces out, just tighten it up a little bit because Vic certainly deserves the best. So, This is just a cleaning up, by no means perfect, but better than what it was. Uh, Call it a a remix, slight, slight edit of that interview. And this was on the 50th anniversary, recorded pivoting off of the 50th anniversary of Vic and the Porsche factory team winning the 24 Hours of Daytona uh, overall in a Porsche 907 back in 1968. So uh, again, believe we did this in January of 2018. Talk about his life. Talk about some of the crazy stuff. He also is not particularly fond of then new Formula One driver Lance Stroll. So I think we get to that a little bit towards the end. But anyways, hope that you enjoy this. I'm going to try and get the part two here done with Vic and out ASAP where there's just some insane stuff that he cracks open there. Um, Love Vic rooting for Vic, knowing that he's been through some serious health challenges over, well, frankly, for uh, many, many years, but in particular, uh, those health challenges returned in a very unfriendly way six, seven months ago. So let's get going with a uh, cleaned up and slightly improved version of My Racing Life and Career Part 1 with the incredible Vic Elford, all brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Alfred, looking at Porsche's, some of Porsche's great advanced news coming into the event reminded many of us that back in 1968 here, uh, years before I was born, but back in 1968 here, uh, you got to celebrate a rather special result. Do you carry successes like that with you? Just, I don't just mean as from a victory standpoint, but from a sense of pride or accomplishment knowing that Daytona 1968 happened to uh, have your name permanently written on it. Yeah, but I keep it to myself. I don't go around talking about it. So uh, the answer is yes, but it's, it remains strictly personal. What was that year like here? My earliest knowledge of this event would have been in the mid-70s, late-70s. So much of what I've read leads me to believe it was a wonderful time, wonderful drivers, cars. 
although I couldn't be here for it. It sounds like I missed out on something rather special. I'm not sure because I always tend to play down things like this. One of the things about, especially with Porsche, but this happened pretty well, pretty well everywhere, whatever I was doing. Um, it's just maybe a little bit more strongly with Porsche. When I started a race or an event, I expected to win. Oh. So uh, when I did, it, it didn't really come as a surprise. When it didn't, when I didn't, I had to go away thinking, now what did I do wrong? What was wrong? Um, let's make it right next time. Or in some kinds, in some occasions, it would have been obvious that there was really was no possibility of winning. But mentally, sure. I always anticipated winning. If I didn't have the best cars, well, so I'll have to drive a bit better. Or if the car wasn't quite quick enough, well, I'll have to drive a bit quicker. Uh, and, so, and that was my mentality. However, here at Daytona, I you know I came off just winning Monte Carlo Rally. Yes, and for, that was for me the most important because I'd always been a rally driver rather than a racing driver till then. I had raced and I won the British Touring Car Championship in '1967 and '911. But uh, my background had always been rallying, and after the previous year when I could have maybe should have won Monte Carlo, but didn't I got caught with nasty regulations. 1968, the, the, the organizers, for the first time, made it into a scratch event. Mm. In other words, the fastest guy in the fastest car wins. And I was quite determined that, that was going to be me and a 911. Amen. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 it, and it was. Uh, but for me, out right up to that point, that had been my prime uh, motivation at that point. You know, we won Monte Carlo without really any any great problems. Uh, prize giving uh, with uh, Prince Rainey and Prince Princess Grace and and the kids was was a, a memorable occasion. Oh. <laughs> um, Brilliant. And and then the, a wonderful party in in the sporting club on on Saturday night to finish it all off. Sunday was a day of just sort of getting over it, um, getting over the excitement really, because none of us drank very much in those days. So it wasn't a question of uh, you know, having a thick head or anything, mm. just, just sort of calming down. And then on Monday, I was up early on the way to Nice and Paris and New York and finally getting here at around 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and well, on the way over, and in fact, until I actually got here, I didn't even know where Daytona was. <laughs> because up until the end of Saturday and even the end of Sunday, my prime uh, motivation for something like a month had been win Monte Carlo. And I knew I was coming here, of course, uh, but I was much, much less motivated for Daytona. A, I didn't know where it was. B, I'd never seen it on the 24 hours or anything. I'd never seen any of it on TV, so I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, and I was simply much less motivated than I was about winning something as prestigious as, as Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo anything. Of course. It had been the Grand Prix or the, or the rally. A foot race would be prestigious. <laughs> and, and so I got here. Uh, my first reaction having got here was 
uh, 11 o'clock at night. This is nice, I like this. Because I can't stand the cold. <laughs> Anything under 75 degrees and I'm cold. Um, and so my first feeling getting here late at night was, I like this, it's nice, it smells nice, the fruit mm. and the flowers and, the, and everything. And I said to myself, one day I'm going to live here. And I've lived in South Florida for about 30 years now. Brilliant. So, so that was, uh, you know, part of it. Then the race itself. From a circuit standpoint, going from Rally Monte Carlo, which there are a number of stages, I guess every rally stage in theory is a test of one's bravery, but there are some more than others where one also tests uh, one's attachment to mortality. Absolutely. What Coming from that and the high, high levels of that test, what did you think of this insane American autodrome banking unit? Well, the first time I drove in through the little tunnel here, of course, uh, I was, it was very impressive. Really. There weren't the big buildings in the main Grand Sand area, of course, then. Uh, but nevertheless, it was very, very uh, impressive. The banking team, the banking at each end was very impressive. At one point, I can't remember how or when or why but I went out at one point and tried to walk up and I couldn't so I was <laughs> impressed with that and uh, then when we went out for our very first drives around almost instantly the car sort of came to life on the making and you had, obviously you had to go to a reasonable speed otherwise you'd fall off and so immediately you were up to a fairly reasonable speed on the banking and it just felt very comfortable the car felt comfortable i had driven on a banking in here in europe a couple of times um and this was a 907 907 yeah a long time um i'd driven at moliere which is parabolic banking so it's not quite the same i had never at that point been to monza although i did later on but that again is parabolic banking uh whereas here in the uh, daytona and, and uh, talladega are flat uh, it was a little impressive because I, I thought, like parabolic, I thought it was going to be a level and the car would just go around on its own. Of course, it doesn't. You actually have to steer it. And so that was the first little surprise that I actually could steer it around the banking. And in fact, I had to steer it around the banking. But then the race itself was just undramatic. Mm. You know, we, we had uh, three cars were entered. We had a fourth car, which we all drove for the week prior to uh, the, the the event actually starting and by the time we actually started the race this fourth car had already done more than a 24-hour race at Daytona and so the mechanics and the German engineers being Germans well, would just wash it and change the oil and we'll enter <laughs> it for the race and Bill Frost said go, go ahead and so uh, it was entered for the race and in fact of the four that were then entered it was one of the three that finished uh, I think it finished second, actually. Oh, boy, I'm not yes. sure. You know, Dave? I have to look that up. Yeah, I would have. I think it finished second because uh, in, the, in the race, uh, Mitter was Mitter and uh, Stommelin were in, in one car that crashed. And my own co driver, Jochen um, Nierbash, was, was rather sick during the night. And so he went off to bed. And when, when Mitter crashed out, Rolf Stommelin came and joined me as my official co-driver and then on Sunday morning um, Joseph and, and Herman Hans Herman had led pretty well all, pretty well all the time all through the night 
once the Fords dropped out, and I was second, and we were just running like that. And they had a little problem, I don't know who it was, I think it was transmission, but I'm not sure. And they lost three or four laps early, mm. sometime early on Sunday morning. And there was Sean Hanstein, our team manager, came to me and he said, Look, man, this is going to be a really big number one for Porsche. Uh, Hans and Joe led for a long time without their problem. They might well have won it. Do you mind if they do a lap or two each? So we're, we're all in it. I said, no, go ahead. We'll, we'll all be part of it. And so uh, Neil Pash had been my co-driver. Stomlin took his place. And then Hans and Joe Sivert each did a few laps in my car. So we were all qualified as, as, uh, as having driven it. And that's why we had all five of us in that monster wreath. How that wreath got there, I have no idea. Because this was, <laughs> this was not planned in advance. But the but Daytona had just happened to turn up with this huge wreath which got us all in and uh, and Bill France, big Bill France and Miss Miss whatever her name was, we're all in there together. How brilliant. Uh, and so that was uh, that was a, uh, a smart PR move by von Henstein, but then he was a very smart guy, von Henstein. And so we all shared it. But to, to be honest, um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, everything went like clockwork. My only few seconds of uh, concern were in the middle of the night when uh, uh, when Mitter crashed. He crashed on the triumph. And I, I think he, he, whether he hit the wall or what, I don't remember, but he went upside down. He was spinning around the triumph on the roof. And it was kicking out smoke and dust and everything. And I drove into it. And this was like just about midnight. And I, as I drove into it, I knew that I was sort of going like that. And I could see nothing. I might as well close my eyes for about <laughs> 10 seconds. And I'm sort of wading through this gray mist. And I came out the other side, hadn't hit anything. And I thought, great, that's it, wonderful. And, and uh, that was the only real excitement I had. I had for the whole race. Those beautiful long tails. We look at the cars here, the prototypes racing today, they're aerodynamic creatures mm. first and foremost. So much tunability to either create extra speed on the straights by race setup or design, depending on what teams want. What was that 907 like to manage or handle knowing that uh, you certainly didn't have multiple wing elements to play with and whatnot. Was this a, how slippery was she to deal with? Well, it was obviously very slippery because it was, you know, that we only had, you probably know better than I, but I would guess, do you, have you any idea, Dave, how much horsepower we had in the 2.2 liter motor? About 270 yeah, horsepower, yeah, I think. 250 to 300. Yeah, 270. And that's it. Mind you, you could pick the car up in one hand, <laughs> you know, because why one of PX maniac things was weight. Yes. And the cars were always, always very, very light. Uh, drag as well. Do you know why those cars were always white? No. Because they weren't painted. Mm. White was the natural color of the fiberglass. Because putting paint on would have added about 30 pounds or so. And so they were always white, pure white. White fiberglass. Stupendous. <laughs> but, but then, there wasn't really very much we could do. They didn't have multiple, the, you know, twi arrow tuning wasn't enough of it. Nothing. Ride height. Really. That was it. 
big, you know, ride height and the odd little things like that. The chassis adjustments a little. Later on, we we did get into that, but even so, only in a very small way. When we came back with the 917s, yes. one year, I guess it was probably the first year, Joseph and I were here earlier and we were doing testing, just the two of us. Uh, and we had, I guess, our, our race cars, because we had a car each. And at some time while we were doing our testing, somebody discovered that, come around the, the tri-oval, from the moment we left the tri-oval to go into the infield and come back around to when we came back onto the banking, that time was almost exactly to the second the same as the time from when we came onto the banking all the way back around again to here. And one of the problems we had on the infield was monster understeering. And, you know, at that time the, in the infield it was a bit longer yes. uh, down to where the hairpin was. Uh, and so we get to that hairpin a lot quicker than they do now. Uh, we couldn't get around it. Was stair. Oh, and stair. was this power down or no, higher speed? It, it, it just wouldn't It just wouldn't go around the corner. Period. Period. Chassis uh, uh, wise, it wouldn't go. So it was on with the throttle off while it turned on. And like this, and you're riding a Bronco. Oh, yeah, obviously we were losing time. So Joe and I had a little chat about it. And we said, well, let's take out some of this damned understeer and then see if we can still drive it around the banking. Because the understeer was primarily to make the car safe and, and you know, to handle on the banking. So we took it all out. We went out and did a couple of laps. And we find well, we were going sideways on the banking at 200 miles an hour. <laughs> so we thought, well, that's not a good idea. And we came back and put it back to where it was. Drifting a Porsche 917 at Daytona. That might be the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Granted, a rally driver doing such a thing, that, that might have, boy, well, the camera should have yeah, been here. Yeah, but even that, it, it wasn't going to last. Not even for a rally driver, I can tell you. <laughs> 280 horsepower. 280. Oh, thank you. Perfect. I wasn't far off, was I? So, Vic, your career being as diverse as it was, curious if the proverbial triple crown ever interested you of trying to win Indianapolis, win Monaco, win Le Mans, if that if those pursuits, I don't know if I want to say specifically the triple crown I'm fixated on, but just from a interest, uh, coming to America and IndyCar ever, the Indy 500, did that appeal to you at all? Well, um, I always wanted to go into Formula One. I never, ever really had a, a, a decent opportunity or the right car. Uh, had I made it properly there, obviously I wanted to be world champion, but that would have been something else. And amongst those along the way, one that I very much would have liked to have won would have been the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. Yeah, the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. Uh, here, Daytona, I liked it, enjoyed it. Uh, and in fact, after my first race here, but Bill France, the old man and I, we became very good friends. I used to sit up in his office a, a lot when I was doing nothing because his secretary back then was a lady named Betty Fault. Uh, and she was the only person I knew in the United States who could make real good coffee. 
And so I used to get out, go and sit up in the office there, and she used to make me pots of coffee. The Vic is here all the time. He is a very chatty bird. Coffee. It's coffee. <laughs> Uh, and then Bill would come in and we'd say, come on in. And I'd go into his office and we'd just sit around talking, you know, nothing is nothing special. Uh, he just enjoyed talking to me and I enjoyed talking to him. Uh, and then after the, the race, uh, when I'd won, I said, you know, Bill, and we didn't, didn't have video or anything sure, like that sure. in those days, but I said, oh, I've seen a film of the 500 on TV. I'd like to come and try that. Okay, my boy. He said, don't worry, I'll get you a car for next year. So I came back in 1969. I didn't do much. I came for the 24-hours course again. But I didn't do much practice because I was never here all through their first couple of weeks. Uh, but I did enough to qualify. And in fact, I qualified 11th in my uh, 150-miler, whatever it was on yeah. Thursday. And I finished 11th in the 500. Wow. And then I came back two years later, I did it again. And then I finished 10th, second time. So I enjoyed that. Uh, the other question, Indy, no. Because back at the, in those days, Indy was very definitely a sort of uh, highly, a high suicide risk, I think, mm. in most people's opinion. Almost every year there would one or two or more died at Indy. Uh, not necessarily in the race, sometimes in practice, uh, and it, w it was just quite common. And I had no wish to die in an IndyCar. And uh, it, we got very close to it, not not that early, but in 1970, I was driving for Jim Hall, mm -hmm. Chaparral in, in Can-Am and Trans Am. And at one point he said, he came up and said, you ever thought about coming to IndyVic? And I said, well, I thought about it, but you know, I'm not mad about it. He said, well, we've been thinking about it. I've been, he had been talking with Pat Patrick about getting one car to move together, them with me driving it. Uh, but they weren't, they weren't uh, terribly enthusiastic about it either. And I was, had it happened, I would have been. Sure, of course. Sure, of course. Sure. Uh, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't desperate. And since then, no, indie cars, honestly, really haven't appealed to me very much. I think, um, I just don't believe, I don't believe any sort of racing series where you can have five different winners in five different races, driving five different cars, one after the other. I just don't, I mean, what it says to me is that none of them, or very, very, very few of them, are ever driven to their limit yeah. in a particular race. And I think the best example of that was Alonso last year. First time ever he came there. And he might well have won had he not had the odd, odd uh, little teething problems during the race. I can't argue with that. <laughs> Some uh, people will, I'm sure. Well, but the having seen and spoken with many drivers who had vehicles where intestinal fortitude was required to get with even get close to its limit uh, then you compare that i'm not saying today's cars are easy to drive but there's something where we see even the even some of the novices are within one mile an hour of the best yep. and that to me tells me the tool is not as sharp or as dangerous. Not that we want danger and no, peril, no. No. but in terms of 
motor racing to me, and this is why I get, uh, I've always loved you and your career, starting out in rally, which I think is about the craziest thing a human being can do in a motor racing vehicle, and then adding, whether it is sports cars, Can-Am, Formula One, Trans-Am, all kinds of things, each one of those, each one of the vehicles that you decided to race involved some sort of personal test, comfort, the, the foreknowledge that I could step in and get 100% out of this relatively easily was never a concept. So to your point, looking at some of today's cars where that personal journey to get to 100% is very short. You've uh, just summed everything up that I would have said myself in different words. You actually, you, 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 uh, you, put, you said one point that um, I don't entirely agree with. I don't entirely disagree with either. You said not to say that today's cars are easy to drive. I take that up and I think in most cases today's cars are easy to drive. Okay. I think it's got to the point where as all the cars have advanced uh, in the technology and suspension and um, uh, engine technology, braking technology, transmission technology and so on. Uh, and it's got to the point of almost, uh, you know, it's drive by finger buttons um, providing you're smart enough and intelligent enough to understand where you are and at what point you are and it's here you press the button not here not there but right there and you can make yourself do it anybody wrote Formula 1 car and I think it was proved last, last year I mean who in their right minds would have had uh, and continue to have him, and in, in fact, he finished second or third somewhere, didn't he? The uh, the rookie, the Canadian, uh, Lance Stroll. Lance Stroll, yeah, who's here this weekend? I know, I, I read, yeah, but I mean, I, I watched him in Formula One, and he can't really drive, but the car, the, he, the car takes him around. If only we were. He doesn't do anything that. stupid, but but uh, but. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm just lost with it. You and I share a similar loss. <laughs> uh, we ha you have to run to your your next Actually, interview. No, he's good. Okay, I need to run. Okay, so if I could just interrupt for one second. Oh, is obvious. I can't. I can't walk. Tom is here. Tom too. Tom, big tall Tom, my partner. He was. He said hello when he came in. He'll keep an eye out for you. Oh, okay. And he'll keep you company for the next forty-five minutes, okay. and then we'll head across the way in our golf cart for five o'clock. We'll leave here at four thirty. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we have plenty of time. Oh, okay. I just have to go to another meeting. Oh, okay, no so, problem. And then what happens after that? Then we'll go across the way for the hospitality with Patrick and Hurley, and then we'll go to the hotel and get ready for tonight. Oh, okay, so he's going to come here and find me, or? Yep, yep, when you walk when out. When we're done, okay. I'll yep. grab Tom. Oh, okay. Sure he knows okay, and then okay. he's going to take me where? He will hang out until I come back. Oh, okay. And you, okay. okay. And I only have another question or two, sir, so no worries. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. See you in a while. Yep. He's such a sweetheart. Yep. Hopefully this isn't an odd question for you, Vic. I have an appreciation for some of today's drivers who I think, whether they know it or not, model their careers after yours. Really? Simon Pagano is one who stands out to me who really? in his off weekends. That? Uh, I've always admired that guy tremendously. Yes. I've never met him. Well, we should. And we I'd should love to because I speak that. French like a Frenchman too. 
Well, despite that, I still appreciate you. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, I look at someone like a Simon Paginot who will climb in a LMP1 monster Peugeot at Le Mans in mm-hmm. a rally car, Indy car. He's a sports car champion. Whatever it is, oh. he that his passion is driving, and the more he gets to drive, yeah, was, I was the same. Was well, if he's around, I'd love to meet him sometime. Are there any drivers, and Simon may be one of them, but are there any drivers today where you look at and say, hmm, we, we have a shared passion? I don't know if I want to say the, a Vic Elford of today, but are there any you see that are similar? Well, Simon Paginot, yeah. Um, uh, Montoya. Hmm. Very much so. I've got, I, I was one of the uh, Skip Barber instructors who taught him to drive. That's, so we have you to blame then. Uh, that's his <laughs> point. With... Uh, Within the first hour of him sitting in the car, it was obviously that he had something the others didn't have in an hour. Less than an hour, half an hour. Just playing with Just natural playing talent. Absolutely, absolutely natural talent. And I took his dad on aside once it was all finished. And I said, Brian, uh, you, you really need to look after him because if, if he gets the right sort of... Uh, and there's a little bit of luck, but, but money was not really a problem for them because his dad had a big business in, in Venezuela, um, in, in Colombia. And uh, I said, look after him, uh, you know, try and make, get the right step all the way. And if he gets the right sort of breaks, he's going to be world champion. And I still believe he could have been world champion. Easily. He's, he had everything it took. So that's two. Um, another one I've always liked him tremendously, and I know him well, so over the years we've become pretty good friends as well. Um, but for example, he's one of the exceptions uh, at Indy, one point through no fault of his own, at one point after a yellow flag because he was hit in the pit lane or something like that, he restarted last and won. Do you remember who that was? I think that was his second victory. So it would be Dario. It was Dario. Yeah. I was hoping you'd say Dario because between his DTM days, his sports cars, uh, I didn't know he came from DTM. Really, I didn't know that. Mercedes, when he was coming out of uh, British Formula Three, and was looking where, where would, obviously Formula One was an aspiration, uh, became aligned with Mercedes and they sent him to uh, the DTM and the shortly lived ITC, the International Touring Car Version, mm-hmm. and did that for two glorious seasons as teammate to Bern Schneider. And then Mercedes uh, uh, sent him to America. I didn't know that all that background. So he's, he's another one on my list. Um, and I know he has an, a massive affinity for you. Well, I know we've always got on very well together, yeah. Um, I honestly can't think of anybody else who sort of strikes me. Uh, I like the two Taylor boys. Um, Both of them. Very different. Yeah, very different. I mean, oh, absolutely. Personality wise, two very. Lovely, lovely kids. Yeah. Just two completely different personalities, but amazing that to have such different brothers, yet you look at the works. stopwatch and you couldn't tell yeah. who was who. 
Another one, I, I believe it or not, we've never yet met either. Maybe I'll get to see how they're doing this weekend, because he's followed, not entirely, but a little bit, the same sort of path that I followed. And he's also a Brit, of a, and that's Nick Tandy. Because oh. he's sort of done that sort of thing. And when he blew everybody away at Road Atlanta last year or the year before, <laughs> I would have loved to have done that too. And you want to talk? I would have done in the same circumstances. Amazing Origins. Nick's introduction to motor racing was on short dirt ovals. That's his deep passion. Yeah. Here's this Le Mans winner driving this phenomenal piece of technology, Porsche 919 hybrid. Yeah. And all he wants to do is step into a NASCAR somewhere and yeah. go around in circles. But yeah. Isn't that beautiful, though? Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me ask one final question, Vic. And this is. I know maybe the tools being used aren't as glorious as we would hope, but do you have an appreciation for the passion being demonstrated by Fernando Alonso yeah. in, in that, as you well know, t today's Formula One drivers rarely stray outside of a very narrow comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Here is Fernando saying, Indianapolis matters to me. I want to do that. Daytona matters to me. Hoping we'll see him at Le Mans this year. That kind of spirit, I think that feeds motorsport in a way that we haven't gotten as much as we'd hoped recently. I have to admit, when I, when I look at what's going on with Alonso, I think, what the hell is the guy doing? I, I, I find it inimaginable. I speak French all the time, but I think French. I, can't, I find it difficult to imagine that he's still got this passion after all this time. He's twice been world champion. He must be one of the richest men in the world. Um, and uh, there, but nothing else seems to matter. It doesn't. There doesn't seem to be anything else in his life. It's all about great driving, different sorts of driving, but nothing else. I when I by the time I I, I stopped, I was already thinking about doing all sorts of other things. Always have been. I haven't always done them. But I, I've always thought about what I would like to do if the circumstances allow me to do it. That's a fascinating point, Vic. And as my wife reminds me on a daily basis, balance. Balance is, balance is a critical portion of passion. Having a passion for something, but having that be so heavily skewed to the exclusion of a well-rounded life, that might not be as glorious. Not speaking ill of Fernando, but that you raise a wonderful point. It almost seems as if, if he isn't motor racing, what the hell is he going to do? What else is there? Exactly. So you, at least for me, and there may be things we don't know about, but I would hope as well that enriching himself in other aspects of life, not just motor racing, maybe that's the next stage of his life. Maybe. But how old is he now? 37, I think. Is he as old as that? 37. Yeah, I, feel, I, I didn't realize he was that old. Because uh, one bit, I, I remember, I think it was the first he won the world champion. I'm not sure. I remember one race, he was driving right behind him off the grid with somebody in a slower car. I don't even remember where it was. I think it was in Asia somewhere. And whoever this somebody was, was a, just a mobile bloody chicane. And everybody else was queued up behind him. And Alonso just sort of drove away. And at one point, the commentator was saying, "Well, uh, Alonso's just been on the 
on the on the phone on the radio to Briatori mm. saying uh, what's the problem uh, I can't see anybody else the, where are they because <laughs> he couldn't even see them in his mirror Briatori uh, don't worry just going no problem and he just drove away and won the race Brilliant. but uh, he was very young man I think it was on the way to his first world champion how old was he then do you remember what? he had to be 20 25 early, early to mid 20s yeah I don't know it's a, I think it's very strange that having done so much and we got this far he hasn't found something else uh, uh, of interest you know Michael Schumacher got there and was was going off to do it um, Stuart did and went off to something else I can't see uh, Hamilton staying around much longer either uh, except to uh, put a few more hundred million in the bank but but uh, he obviously still enjoys it sure sure but he obviously enjoys a whole load of other things too and I don't think he will miss racing even the one the moment he gets to say well that's it I've had enough he's not going to miss it I don't think I don't know I've never met him but he looks like the sort of guy I'd quite like to meet I'm sure he, he really enjoys life well that's a perfect uh, closing point you're here we have this 50 car grid we have a, a stellar uh, entry list in terms of teams Roger Pinsky is back many drivers uh, you know, champions from throughout the world I'm guessing you enjoy coming to an event like this because of not just the energy but also it's that continual sustenance of here's the next generation and the next moving on do you come here and just appreciate as someone who's helped build the foundation that we stand on that all right let's come watch some of the young pups try and add a few more layers not really no 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 i'm i don't honest to be honest i i don't find it very exciting to watch motor racing i've never been a, a watcher or a looker mm. i've always i always have to be involved um it started in school when I played soccer and when I was an athlete uh, and it's always been like that as an engineer I wanted to be the top engineer uh, designing buildings and and I couldn't just sort of be around I have to be heavily involved preferably the top one involved but I know I've got to work to get there it's not going to just happen and I always want to be there so actually watching other people do other things generally doesn't really excite me very much. And that was Quick Vic, the great Quick Vic. Hope that you enjoyed that. As I said, I'll try and get the part two going here as quickly as I can. If you haven't paid a visit, you might check out marshallpruittpodcast.com. More than 1,200 back episodes for you to enjoy a subscribe page with most of the popular platforms where you might opt in and get everything that we publish as soon as it goes live and then a merchandise page with a variety of stickers and other little swag things related to the podcast all right i am marshall pruitt this is the marshall pruitt podcast brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com